You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome, everyone, to another episode from 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. I'm your host, John Hagedorn, and this one, a mystery, and not just a mystery, but one of the greatest unsolved wilderness mysteries of the 20th century. And it's a head-scratcher at first glance. Many people have offered dozens of solutions, over 60 of them and counting. For the record, I've been looking at this story for almost five years. This was the one that inspired me to begin podcasting, so it's special to me, and I wanted to get it right. I think we're there, and with this story, I'll give you my theory as to what really happened, adding some new material along the way that either isn't covered by others or has been glossed over, and adding what I believe is the correct answer to the mystery. You'll get your chance as well. If all I did was repeat what's already been done, I think you'd be disappointed, so have faith this will be an interesting journey. And, as in some other cases, I think those who suffered this deserve justice, and so do their families. If you or I can light just one small candle along the way, maybe we can make a difference. In February of 1959, the frozen bodies of a nine-member ski hiking expedition that had gone missing weeks before in the northern Ural Mountains of the Soviet Union were found at different distances from their campsite, far outside their tent, in most cases wearing only their sleep clothes and socks, some of them showing radiation burns on their faces and registering high levels of radiation contamination on their clothing, with autopsies on some of them showing massive internal chest injuries which were described by a coroner looking as if they'd been hit by a truck. There were some missing eyes and in one case a missing tongue. Some of them clearly showed signs they'd been hit with a blunt object. Some of them also showed signs similar to those you would get if you were trying to fight off an attacker. Something or someone had caused them to leave the warmth and safety of their tent the night of February 2nd, 
1959, in what looks like a panic, in various stages of dress, knowing they faced the surety of freezing to death within minutes or hours in order to try to escape the present danger which had overcome them. Theories abound, ranging from an attack by the local Mansi tribe, or by the KGB, or by a killer yeti, to the use of hallucinogenic drugs, to aliens, to military rocketry, to sound waves which cause panic and confusion, and a wide range of other possibilities. The personalities of each of the victims, including their education, their character, and the results of their post-mortems, will be discussed here, as all this information is needed to form a hypothesis as to what happened and why. The fact that the Soviets were involved in secret testing of nuclear and radiological weapons in dozens of locations in remote areas of the Soviet Union, and were taking extreme measures to cover all this up, is now well documented, and is a factor to watch as this story unfolds. And in part one, we'll tell you the story and set the background for the theories. And here's the story. The story begins as an effort by 23-year-old Igor Dyatlov, a radio engineering student at the Ural Polytechnic Institute in the Soviet Union, who was a grade two level hiker with ski tour experience, to put together an experienced group of cross-country skiers, all members of the Institute's sports club, all rated grade two like himself, for the purpose of making a weeks-long trek into the Urals that would propel them all to grade three certification, the highest certification available in the Soviet Union. That would require a 300-kilometer hike, equaling 190 miles. The ages in the group of 10 ranged from age 20 through 24, with one exception being Semyon Zolotarov, age 38. Eight of them were men, two were women. They were all highly fit and experienced with past treks. The Ural Mountains stretched north to south more than a thousand miles, dividing the steppes of Russia and Asia from eastern Europe. The northern Urals are a wilderness area inhabited by small rural villages, whose citizens are either self-supportive or work for the timber and mining interests which are prevalent in the Urals. In the Urals, there are also nomadic tribes called the Mansis. The ski groups, called tourists, as was anyone there who ventured into the wilderness, were made up mostly of students and graduates from the Ural Polytechnic Institute, UPI, which was located a few hundred miles away in Yekaterinburg in the province of Sverdlovsk. UPI was an engineering school and a key asset in the Soviet Union for finding trained engineers whose jobs would eventually center around developing Russia's growing post-World War II nuclear arsenal and the development of plutonium and radiological weaponry in the late 40s and 50s. On the 27th of January, 1959, the group began its trek toward their destination, Otorton Mountain, from the town of Vizai, to which they had traveled by train. On the 28th, one of the group's members, Yuri Yadin, was forced to turn back due to knee and joint pain, a decision that was to save his life, and the group, now consisting of nine, continued on their way. Diaries and cameras found around their campsite later showed that the group arrived at the edge of a highland area on the 31st and began to prepare for climbing. In a wooded valley, they catched surplus food and equipment that would be used for the trip back. The group, as was told to their diaries and cameras, remained in high spirits throughout their journey, 
and all contributed to a humorous chronicle of their trip that they called the Evening O'Torton, named after the mountain to which they were headed, but never reached. The diary entries and pictures show them to be a group of fun-loving university students enjoying an outdoor adventure for which they felt prepared mentally and physically. They had no qualms with each other, with the exception of the last entry of the older Sasha Zolotyev, the 37-year-old World War II veteran, at the last minute. On February 1st, they began to move through the path that would eventually bear his name, hoping to make camp on the opposite side. But the weather turned bad, cold and windy, blowing snow, which was making visibility hard, and their direction got off course, bringing them westward toward the top of what the Mansi call Dead Mountain. When they realized their mistake, they decided to stop and set up camp on the slope of the mountain, the other option being to give up the altitude they'd already reached and move a mile back down the mountain to a more forested area. The area they chose on the slope was located near a ridge above which was less snow, according to experienced investigators after the fact, which lessened the threat of an avalanche. Death by avalanche remains on the possible cause list today, but is lower on the list than it was years ago. Nothing was heard from them by the 20th of February, at which point some of the families were very upset and ordering a search, so the university responded by sending a few rescue groups consisting of students and their professors in various directions to determine the location of the group. The university and the military were closely tied, and the Soviet military would become involved in the search using planes and helicopters. The first rescue group to reach the site was the one which was assigned to follow the trail of the Dyatlov group. The second group to reach it had been dropped on O'Torton, and while searching, was tipped off as to the location of the tent by a capsule dropped by a military helicopter, the capsule containing the location of the Dyatlov campsite. It was almost as if the military wanted the university teams to find the site first before their investigators arrived. Maybe to muddy up the crime scene? Keep in mind that in Russia in 1959, not a thing went on that wasn't supervised by the heads of the Communist Party, who were all planted in powerful positions. On February 26th, the first group of searchers found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent on Dead Mountain, known in Russian as Kolatsyakol. The campsite baffled the search party. Mikhail Sherevin, the student who found the tent, said, The tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty, and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind inside it. Investigators said the tent had been cut open from the inside. Eight or nine sets of footprints left by people who were wearing only socks or a single shoe or boot, or were even barefoot, could be followed, leading down towards the edge of a nearby woods on the opposite side of the pass, 1.5 kilometers, or almost a mile, to the northeast. However, after 500 meters, about 1,600 feet, or a little over five football fields, these tracks were covered with snow. Far down the slope from the tent, under a large Siberian pine, named as a cedar in various sketches and descriptions, the searchers found the visible remains of a small fire. There were located the first two bodies, those of Yuri Kravonashenko and Yuri Doroshenko, shoeless and dressed basically in their underwear and light shirts. Georgi Krivonashenko, whom they all called Yuri, 
was a friend of Igor Jatlov, and he took part in almost all the expeditions that Igor went to. Also, Yuri was good friends with the majority of the Jatlov group, who often visited the spacious apartment of his parents in the city center of Sredlovsk. Kravonyshenko's parents were well-educated and influential people, and they often welcomed students to their place. His father was the chief construction engineer of the Belyarsky Hydroelectro Station. Yuri himself was the life of the party, played a mandolin, and was known as the jokester of the group. He studied construction and hydraulics at UPI University and had just graduated. While working in Chelyabinsk 40, a secret nuclear facility, he experienced a disaster that became known as the Kustomkoi accident. On September 29, 1957, the plutonium plant experienced a radioactive leak. Yuri was among the people who was sent to clean it up. Some later reports tried to connect his past experience with the fact that his clothing was found to have high levels of radioactivity at the campsite. However, being an engineer, Yuri had more knowledge about radioactivity than most people at the time. It's highly unlikely that he'd kept any of the clothes that he was wearing two years prior to that trip. The group's arrival in the town of Serov on the morning of February 24th was marked by an incident. Yuri Kravonyshenko was detained by the police at the railway station. At first, the police did not let the group into the building. They probably thought that group of young people were too noisy for the sleepy settlement, but then they relented and allowed the group to enter the station. Kravonyshenko was great fun to be around, and on that morning he was in a particularly exuberant mood. First, he asked Lyuda for money to buy breakfast in a cafe, that being Lyudmila Alexandrovna Dumininya whom they all called Lyuda. She was the group's treasurer, and she told them they couldn't afford it. She was the youngest of the group at age 20. She was a third-year student at UPI University and an engineering and economics major. Athletic and strong, she was also a dedicated and outspoken communist. She was active in the tourist club and liked to sing and take pictures. Many of the pictures of the last trip were shot by her. During an expedition to the eastern Sayan Mountains in 1957, she was accidentally shot by another tourist, i.e. hiker, who was cleaning his rifle. She endured the painful injury courageously, and during the long and painful transportation back, she didn't complain, but felt sorry for causing the group trouble. Now, perhaps, she was trying to compensate for her extravagance in Sverdlovsk, where she'd bought that unnecessary five meters of cambric, which cost 200 rubles. In response, Krivonashenko started to sing loudly, and the police were swiftly alerted. But Krivonashenko was not only singing when he was approached by the policeman, he was also showing off a little bit and acting like a panhandler, walking around with a hat in his hands and asking for money. Liuda wrote in her diary, They immediately took him to the police station. The policeman told him singing in public places is forbidden. Liuda tried to find an explanation as to why the police took this approach, and she wrote, it's because this town is very calm, as if it's already a communist era here. No crime, no law violations. And then our Yurka Krivonyshenko started to sing loudly. Devout communist though they say she was, she was apparently no admirer of the Stalin era. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Returning to our search, one of the first two to be found, and found lying not far from Yuri, was another Yuri, Yuri Doroshenko, a student of radio engineering at UPI. He had an impulsive personality and was famous at the school's hiking club for having run at a giant bear with a geologist's hammer while on a camping trip. He was once involved in a relationship with another member of the group, Zina Komogorova, and even met her parents in Kamensk Urals. Although they had broken up, he kept a good relationship with her and Igor Jadlov. Zina Komogorova was a four-year student at the UPI University and enrolled as a radio engineering major. She was an experienced hiker who had had her share of difficulties. During one of her trips, she was bitten by a viper. Despite pain and suffering, she refused to lighten her load, unwilling to cause hardship to others. She was very outgoing and energetic. The people who knew her said she was the engine of the university. She was always full of ideas and was liked by everyone. As a result, people were naturally drawn to her, especially children. Zina had an exceptionally sociable character, and despite her popularity in school, she treated everyone with fondness and respect. Zina Kolmogorova had gone on six previous expeditions. Four were of the second category of complexity, an intermediate level, and she was always going to the treks led by Igor Jatlov. Like Igor himself, Zina was interested in radio. The two were always seen together. A photo of her was found later in his notebook. Yuri Doroshenko, the second Yuri, was 21 years old when he died. He was the tallest in the group, and he had come from a very poor family. He usually wore a jacket inadequate to protect him from the freezing temperatures of Sverdlovsk. She had been present that day he had challenged the bear, and admitted in her diary that she had fallen in love with him. The night of the bear attack, they had talked while making a campfire together. Doroshenko told her of his mother, who lived in Aktivin City in Kazakhstan and who for several years had been saving money in order to buy him a warm coat. The two often found themselves side by side, but neither Yuri nor Zina had any idea what an expedition pickup was back in 1958. The girls then routinely shared tents with the boys, and they would lay close to each other, talking. There was so much of life ahead, unexplored. When they got back to Sverdlovsk, they started to date. Yuri once visited Zina's home in Kamenskurovsky, where she introduced him to her family. He also had Zina's pictures at his home. After a while, something went wrong in the relationship. It was over by the time that this expedition had started. It was apparently Yuri who initiated the break. Her friend Valentina Tokareva shared a letter that Zina had written to her on the day of the expedition. My dearest Valia, here we are on our way to the expedition. Do you want a surprise? Yuri Doroshenko is coming with us. I really don't know how I'll feel. I'll relate to him like anyone else, but it's really hard because we are together and yet we're not together. As we joined the search in progress, the branches on the tree near the two Yuris were broken up to five meters high, suggesting that one of them had climbed up to look for something, perhaps to camp, perhaps to get a better view of their attacker, or perhaps to get out of the reach of their attacker but it looked as though the branches higher up had been broken strategically to allow the climber to look back toward the tent without being seen. Yuri Doroshenko was found wearing a sleeveless cotton undershirt, 
a short-sleeved checked shirt with two empty breast pockets, with all six buttons fastened, and blue cotton underpants fastened with two buttons, badly ripped on the front, on the right. He was wearing a different set of wool socks on both feet. The socks on his left foot were burned, probably from an attempt to warm his feet over the fire. He had no shoes. During the autopsy, liver mortar spots were located at the back of the neck, torso, and extremities, which were not consistent with the position of the body in which it was found. This means the body was moved some time after the blood stopped circulating. His ear, nose, and lips were covered with blood. The upper lip was swollen with a dark red hemorrhage, and a gray foam was covering his right cheek. A gray liquid was coming from his mouth. Bruises covered his arms and legs. Bruises probably gotten from climbing the cedar tree. The foamy gray fluid that was found on his right cheek started the speculations that before death, someone or something was pressing on his chest cavity. This forceful method was common for interrogation by the NKVD, that's Stalin's secret police, and special forces. The cause could also be a nasty fall from a tree, from which he would have had to have landed on his chest. The gray fluid was ignored in the final papers that read, cause of death, as it was in all of them, hypothermia. Experts described the injuries, bruises, and abrasions as non-life-threatening and explained them with Doroshenko hitting himself in rocks and ice and other surrounding objects in the state of agony. Death, according to the file, occurred six to eight hours after the last meal. Close to him was found the other Yuri, Yuri Kravonashenko. Yuri Kravonashenko's body was discovered underneath the cedar tree. He was dressed in an undershirt, long-sleeved check shirt, swimming pants, long underpants, and had a torn sock on his left foot. He wore no other footwear. He had suffered bruises on his forehead, burns on his leg. The tip of his nose was missing, and pieces from the back of his hand were found in his mouth, indicating that he'd most likely been trying to awaken his freezing hand so he could remain clinging in the tree, or stifle a cry. And in addition to other abrasions, he had chest abrasions similar to the other Yuri's. Their outer clothing had been removed by still-living companions. Between the cedar and the camp, the searchers, using long sticks to locate bodies beneath the snow, found three more corpses, those of Jetlov, Zina Kolmogorova, and Slobodin, who seemed to have died in poses suggesting they were attempting to return to the tent. They were found separately at distances of 300, 480, and 630 meters from the tree. Igor Jetlov was the leader of the ill-fated hiking group, the whole incident and the pass having been named after him. He was a student of the 5th Faculty of Radio Engineering at UPI University. A talented engineer, he designed and assembled a radio during his second year that was used during hikes in 1956 in the Sayan Mountains. He also designed a small stove that he used after 1958 and that he'd brought with him on this trip. A stove that some theorists believe may have been responsible for the disaster. He was 23 years old when he died. Igor was one of the most experienced athletes in the group. Hiking was his one true love. The Ortorton was his goal. The Ortorton Mountain, many believe, was sacred for the local indigenous people, the Mansi. Their legend said, Ortorton means, don't go there, which made it exactly the place where Igor Jatlov wanted to go. He liked breaking rules. 
Dyatlov was neither tall nor muscular. He had a gap in his teeth and was not especially good-looking. But there was something extremely charismatic about him. His passion for expeditions was almost maniacal. For him the mountains represented a journey into a world of freedom, a joyous relief from the grinding oppression of the Communist Party. When he went on expeditions it was he, not the party, who was in charge. In the mountains he made his own decisions and was able to test his mettle and his independence. At that time, Jetlov was at the peak of his physical and athletic ability and was respected by the ski-hiking community in Sverdlovsk. Igor was found that same day, February 27, 1959, 300 meters from the cedar, face up, head towards the tent. Above the snow were visible only his hands, clenched into fists, folded in front of his chest. They found his jacket unbuttoned, which was extremely unusual for somebody that's freezing to death. His complexion had been described as bluish-red. He had an unbuttoned fur sleeveless vest, a blue sweater, a long-sleeved red cotton shirt, a blue sleeveless cotton singlet, ski pants over his pants, but was wearing no shoes. He had one cotton sock on his left foot and one woolen sock on his right foot. It's hard to explain this uneven distribution. It could be that he had two socks on one foot and later took it off to protect the other bare foot. It might have been someone's sock who simply gave it away to protect a friend from a certain death. He had minor abrasions on his forehead, upper eyelids, cheeks, along with bloody lips, brownish-red abrasions on his ankles, and a single incision on the lower third of his right tibia. And the metacarpophalangeal joints on his right hand had brown-red bruises. This is a common injury in hand-to-hand fights. To get a better idea of the injuries, just make a fist. This is the part of the hand which you use to hit someone. There were no internal injuries. His cause of death, like all of them, was ruled as hypothermia. Rustin Slobodin, and they called him Rustic, had just graduated from the UPI University in 1959. He was a very athletic man, honest and decent. Ethnically, he was a Russian, but his parents were both university professors and worked in Asia when he was born and gave him the Asian name Rustam. Rustic, as he was often called, was a man of few words. He was 23 and a long-distance runner, and not only a good athlete, but he could take risks. Rustic could fend for himself and had earned a reputation as being courageous, hardened, dependable, and adventurous. Rustic's body, like the others, looked like he had fought off an attacker. He was found 480 meters from the cedar on March 5th, the day after the autopsy of the first four bodies, covered with 50 centimeters of snow, face down, head towards the tent. He was better dressed than the previously found hikers. He wore a long-sleeve undershirt, shirt, sweater, two pairs of pants, four pairs of socks, and one felt boot, called a valenka, on his right foot. On the chest, under the sweater, were two shoe insoles in the shirt pocket, 310 rubles, and his passport. In other pockets were found a small folding pocket knife, a pencil, pen, a comb and a plastic sleeve, a box of matches with 48 matchsticks, and one cotton sock. His autopsy was performed on March 8th by Coroner Vajrashtani, who had done the previous four. His forehead was hemorrhaged and showed minor brownish-red abrasions. There were two long scratches at the distance of three centimeters between them. He had a brownish-red bruise on the upper eyelid of the right eye that had hemorrhaged. 
"'there were traces of blood discharged from his nose. "'He had swelling and a lot of small abrasions "'on both sides of his face. "'Again, he had bruises on both hands, "'common in hand-to-hand fighting. "'His lips were swollen. "'He had bruises on the left tibia. "'Skin was torn from his right forearm, "'and he was showing a fracture of the frontal bone, "'which showed on a separate skull trauma diagram. "'The man who performed the autopsy "'suggested that the fracture in his skull was done with some blunt object, possibly a stone or a hard branch. The medical autopsy further stated that Slobodin probably suffered loss of coordination due to initial shock right after that blow that sped up his death from hypothermia. That conclusion was made very carefully, and the death of Rustic Slobodin was still judged as a result from hypothermia. All bruises and scratches were blamed on last-minute agony rather than a fight although it's still somewhat unclear how he did manage to harm his exterior hands and legs. When the person falls even in an irrational state, it's usually the palms that suffer the most, as well as medial aspects of the legs. Injury to the head are less common, especially bilateral ones. It's also unusual to harm the face and sides of the skull, while the back of the head has no damage. In the case of Slobodin's body, you'll find the opposite. His injury pattern is a reverse of what we would usually see in injuries suffered by a freezing man in the last minutes of his life. We'd have to assume that if he were not defending himself from someone or something, that he had fallen repeatedly on his face as he was walking down the mountain, and every time he fell, he managed to hit the sides of his head. This is very unusual for a man who is probably in better physical shape than anyone else in the group. Even a long ski trip could hardly be responsible for this alleged clumsiness. Rustic's body had an icy bed underneath it from the hardening of the thawing snow. That means that the body fell when relatively still warm, and there was a noticeable heat exchange into the environment. This observation and conclusion was mentioned in a man named Axelrod's testimony. But Axelrod had never seen the rest of the bodies when they were found, so if Axelrod was the only one registering that fact, then the rest might well have missed it with the other bodies. On Doroshenko, Kolmogorova, and Slobodin, the liver mortis spots were on the top surface of the body, which opens up speculations that the bodies were moved, turned over, after their death. And this finding was very controversial. Zina Kolmogorova's body also appeared as though she'd been hit hard. She was found 630 meters from the cedar, face down, head towards the tent. The skin of her face and hands was purple-red in color. She was better dressed than the bodies under the cedar. She had two hats, long-sleeve undershirt, sweater, checked shirt, and another sweater with torn cuff of the right sleeve. It was unclear whether she cut them or it was torn by another person. Her sweaters were inside out, which is not unusual for mountaineers when they try to dry clothes by wearing them. Waist down, Zena was wearing cotton sport pants, trousers, ski pants with three small holes at the bottom of the right trouser leg, and three pairs of socks. Two pairs were thin, then the third pair was woolen with insoles inside. She was wearing no footwear. In her pockets were found five rubles and a military-style protective mask on the left side of her chest between the top sweater and the checked shirt underneath. She had brown and dark red abrasions all around her head, numerous abrasions on her left cheekbone, bruised skin on the right side of her face. 
brownish-red abrasions on the backs of both hands in the area of the metacarpal phalangeal and interphalangeal joints. In other words, her hands looked as though she'd been in a fight as well. And on one hand, her right hand was a wound with jagged edges and missing skin at the base of the third finger. She also noticeably had a long, bright red bruise in the lumbar region on the right side of her torso. That bruise, the autopsy report read, looked very much like it was done by a baton or bat. Her cause of death was ruled as hypothermia due to a violent accident. The medical examination showed that Zena was not sexually active at the time of her death. This fact was only relative to, one, assess the nature of the relationship between Zena and Igor, and two, so the report reads, if escaped prisoners were to blame for the crime, it's doubtful that they would have left the girls alone. So the report reads. But in sub-zero weather, an attack on this group could only have been by those persons or beings whose purpose it was to render them harmless, knowing that the freezing temperatures would finish the job. After the discovery of the campsite in the first five bodies, it would be another three months before the remaining four were discovered by a Mansi searcher and his dog. The Mansi tribesmen had been cooperative throughout the search and questioning and had no motive for attacking the group. They wanted to help find the remaining members. And this discovery in May of four bodies that had suffered severe blows from someone or something would change the course of the entire investigation. The four bodies found Lyudmila Dubinina, Lyuda, the youngest at age 20, Semyon, called Sasha Zolotaryov, the oldest, who turned 38 the day he died, and had spent five years working with the Russian military, winning five honors along the way, and had signed on to the trip at the last minute, raising some suspicions among others as to why. Also was found Nikolai Tibo Brignol, nicknamed Tibo a recent UPI graduate. Tebow, called Kolya by his family, had experience in hiking trips of various categories of difficulty, was very popular among UPI students and members of the tourist club. Everyone who knew Tebow noted his energy, inventiveness, friendliness, and humor. He appears in many of the photos smiling and having fun and being himself. He was 23 years old when he died. Tebow's father, not Tebow as often reported, had been born in a prison camp. And lastly, Alexander Kolevatov, called Sasha. He was born in 1934 in Savardlovsk. In 1938, his father, a financial director for a group of factories, was assigned to directorship of a gulag or prison camp, the first to house captured Germans in World War II. Life there for his family was miserable. He had no formal schooling there and was educated by his sister, Soon after the war, his father was found dead on the railway line, killed by a train. The family lost everything and became dependents until 1946, when they were finally able to return to Sverlosk and Sasha could attend school. He had poor scores and no direction until he joined the Commissal, the Communist Youth Party, which all Soviets are obligated to join at age 14. And soon after he joined, his scores and interests rose. And he rose quickly reaching a high status within the party. And he achieved a degree in metallurgy. And he entered shooting and travel clubs, some people in those clubs suspecting that he enjoyed a keeper status within the party, or classified status, in which he could be used to carry out assignments of a classified nature. 
The Soviets were fond of creating travel groups that consisted of highly vetted young commissal recruits with degrees in various areas of engineering and physics who could be trusted to travel freely and for long periods of time, no doubt to provide information for intelligence under the cover of being part of a travel group. Some travel groups paid their own way. Some were sponsored by the university and some were sponsored by various communist leaders close to intelligence. What their assignments were and how they performed them is anyone's guess, but if you will recall the innocent diary that Lyuda made regarding their stop at the railway station in the town called Serov on the morning of February 24th, and the incident in which Yuri Krivonoshenko, who, as you remember, had been involved in the highly classified leak at a secret nuclear power plant, was detained by the police at the railway station. Maybe Yuri was trying to get information to them about something he knew about a member of the group. Maybe they saw Yuri's name and passport, and it rang a bell as someone who was on their suspect list. Going on a hunch because the town of Serov hadn't been mentioned as a stop in any of the research I had done, I looked into the name of that town, S-A-R-O-V, and lo and behold, the Soviets had built a top-secret nuclear testing and development center there and even changed the name of the town, removing Sarov from the map two years before this group visited it. Luja must have had an old familiarity with the name, and that's why she added it. It would be safe to say that no cameras were allowed there, very few visitors, and certainly no wild groups of college students would have been welcome. Sarov is called today the Russian counterpart to the U.S. Los Alamos where scientists in our employ came up with the first atom bomb. In fact, it's called the Sister City to Los Alamos by many. It was no coincidence that the group tarried there, and no coincidence that Kravonashenko was questioned. The only unanswered question is why, and could this be a clue as to what transpired at the campsite eight days later? Back to the discovery of the final four. In early May, when the weather had improved, they were recovered from under a three-meter layer of snow in the bed of a stream, about 75 meters from the cedar tree. They were somewhat better clothed and had been able to dig a protective pit, sheltering it with boughs, and built a fire. But something or someone had found them, and they had suffered massive injuries before they died of exposure. With multiple broken ribs, crushed skulls, radiation burns, missing eyeballs, a missing tongue on Liuda and too many bruises to count. The last four, who had apparently been led by the 38-year-old World War II veteran Alexander Sasha Kolevitov, to a ravine and a nearby stream where they could dig in and had at least a small chance of survival. It was apparent that they used a knife to trim and cut kindling for a fire. However, the knife was never found there by searchers and investigators. Their internal injuries were described as appearing as though they had been hit by a truck. And we'll add, a radioactive truck. That sounds a lot like the blast of a radiological weapon to me. But at the autopsy, during which the medical technicians doused themselves in alcohol in hopes of protecting themselves from what looked like a radiation glow coming from the victim's clothing, they discovered that one of the four had not suffered any of those injuries and had died simply from hypothermia. And that was Kalevatov. And then to add mystery on top of mystery, as the examiners looked at the body organs of the four, examining them for radioactive poisoning, they found that only one person's body was radioactive, 
and it was a heart. Kalevatov's heart was radioactive. So I looked this up, and I found that certain types of suicide pills, which were given to spies and commandos performing duties that might involve capture and interrogation, contained radiation, and that this could be detected during an autopsy of the heart. And so it seems that Sasha Kolevatov ingested a suicide pill after somehow protecting himself from the attack. More food for thought. Lee Ivanov, who directed the investigation, had been ordered by the party to keep his mouth shut about these facts, which he did, and they only came out many years later, when the Soviet Union experienced glasnost and people like Ivanov began to talk without fear of reprisal. There's lots going on. We'll be back in one week with part two and all the theories, including ours, as to what really happened at Jetlov Pass. Here are some clues while you're waiting. The members of the group all had cameras and photographed every portion of the trip right up to that last night. Some of the pictures have become controversial talking points to support various theories. One picture, somewhat blurry, shows what appears to be a man, not a Yeti, the Euro-Russian version of a Bigfoot, stepping out from behind a tree, in a fairly suspicious manner. Yet supporters of the killer Yeti theory claim it's a Yeti and support it by saying that only a creature with the power of a Yeti could inflict the type of injuries the hikers suffered, and the students had mentioned Yetis in their journal. Another picture, the last one taken that fateful night, was taken from a camera positioned on a tripod near the tent, showing glowing orbs dropping from the blackness of the sky. It's very blurry, but being that it was the last picture, and that they'd set the camera on a tripod for that picture, that must have been very important to them, and a message that they wanted to share. Later, a Soviet colonel would tell as many people as he could a secret, that his men returned to the campsite after the bodies were removed, and witnessed strange fireballs that terrified his soldiers, who, thanks to their bravery, managed not to panic and stayed in their tents and survived. If ever there was a disinformation campaign going on, this looks like one. Why would the army want to spread a rumor like this about fireballs? And during the search, one of the searchers involved later wrote that at one point, the sound of guns and other types of weaponry firing in the distance frightened them resulting in a call being made by one of the leaders of the search to stop whatever military exercise was taking place. Two days later, all the noise stopped. And in this remote wilderness, where there was no military presence ever officially reported. And this. Archives of the Europolytechnic Institute revealed a remarkable detail about Alexander Kolevatov. Before transferring to the Physics Technical Department at the UPI, he worked in Moscow as a laboratory assistant in a top-secret scientific facility, an unnamed Atomic Institute known as P.O. Box Number 3394. And Yuri Kravonyshenko also worked in a most notorious P.O. Box, that plant Mayak in Chelyabinsk, 4010, where a massive nuclear disaster, second in severity only to Chernobyl, occurred in 1957 and it was all kept very hush-hush until decades later. Researcher Alexei Rakitin is certain that this peculiar fellowship was not gathered by a whim of chance. Behind the biographies of Zolotaryov, Kolevatov, and Krivonyshenko, 
the brooding shadow of the KGB is very distinct. And this one. Many reports from the Mansi tribes and scattered witnesses in this part of the Urals in the late 50s reported strange lights in the sky as well as falling, glowing orbs and explosions. Yet all this was somehow being kept a secret. It wasn't until 1959-1960 that photos taken from U-2 reconnaissance planes proved to the CIA that Russia was testing nuclear weapons. The Urals, including the Dyatlov Pass, must have been glowing with all that going on. And you can bet the U.S., locked in a nuclear arms race with Russia, was very eager to know just exactly what was happening. There's even a rumor out there that two CIA agents were assigned the mission to meet with a Russian scientist during a ski hike to receive a classified report. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. And be sure to catch Part 2 next week Sunday night around 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll see you then. inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.